Good to see y'all. If we haven't met, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, you know, I didn't know until the four o'clock service yesterday. I knew Pastor Paul was leaving. I knew we were announcing it. I didn't know we were, I was coming out right after the Pastor Paul is leaving video until it started playing in four o'clock service yesterday. But I, I, I just want you to know what, what a gift that man has been to our team. He is, I mean, you've heard him teach. He's tremendous. Uh, behind the scenes, what he has done, investing in our staff and just being uh, just a steady, wise influence on, on so many of us, uh, not the least of which a, a knucklehead like me, uh, has just been such a blessing. So I'm going to miss him. Like uh, Pastor Lance said, he's leaving for all the right reasons, so excited for what's in front of him, but I still think it's stupid that he's leaving. So that's that. So uh, anyway, just if you have a chance to express your appreciation uh, to him before he goes, would encourage you to do that. Well, hey, we are in the middle of a series called Resilient, studying the book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible or a Bible-equipped mobile device, I want to invite you to go there. If you're using a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, it's going to be on page 1014, and we're not going to get to the scripture for just a minute, but doesn't hurt to be open there and, and ready to go. Uh, we're talking, like I said, through this series about the concept of resilience, and resilience is the ability to bounce back from difficult circumstances. Uh, one thing that I, I said during the first week of this series is just something that kind of unites all of us is we all face different challenges, whether it's in our family or financially or health-wise, just, you know, you name it. We've all got all sorts of stuff that we're dealing with and that comes our way, and I said that some else that unites us is we don't want to be shipwrecked by those challenges. We don't want those things to destroy us, right? We want to be able to bounce back. So I think on some level, we all desire to be resilient people, but how we can actually develop resilience can be a bit of a mystery. How can I become the sort of person who can face difficult circumstances and not be destroyed by it? So that's what we're talking about in this series. We started off the series by talking about resilient hope. What does it look like to, have, to be the sort of person who can be filled with hope no matter what's going on? And then last week, Pastor Judah talked to us about resilient holiness. And as we, we turn our attention from 1 Peter chapter 1 to 1 Peter chapter 2 this weekend, we're going to talk about resilient character. What does it look like to be a person of resilient Character, And I just want to say right out of the gate, character is kind of a weird or even scary subject to talk about. And I think that's true for a number of reasons. It's a weird subject to, to give a teaching on, just to tell you, it's the, the person who's standing in front of you talking about this subject. Because like, I don't know, I've had plenty of experiences where I go and listen to somebody talk about something. And if I'm going to sit and listen to somebody, I sort of assume they have some expertise on the subject that they are speaking on. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not going to stand up here before you and go, all right, everybody, I have got character figured out. Learn from me, right? I mean, if you'll forgive kind of the pastor cliche, everything I'm going to say today, I need just as much as, as anybody else. And I'm not going to tell you about my character. I would leave that to the people who spend the most time with me and who are around me the most and see me in unscripted moments. They are the ones who can tell you about my character. Now, I've paid them all very handsomely, so I expect you'd get a, you'd get a wonderful report in talking to them. But, but again, it's, just, it's a weird subject to talk about. But I want to be very clear also from the beginning about what character is not. If we're going to talk about character together, we are not talking about guilt avoidance. How do I just not feel guilty? This is a guilt-free zone. There's no guilt attached to this message. You might be thinking, oh great, we're in church talking about character. So I'm just going to be told how I'm bad, I need to do better, and I need to try harder. Really glad I braved the rain for this. That is not what we're talking about today. We're not talking about guilt 
avoidance. Well, we're not talking about comparison, where we try to get ourselves to a certain level of kind of moral acceptability so that we can compare ourselves favorably with others. Or we're not talking about sin management. The great Dallas Willard would talk about this idea of sin management, of where, where oh, we just sort of reduce our spiritual lives to trying to kind of reduce sin as much as possible. And that's not a bad thing, but that's not the totality of the Christian life, right? Or to cite Dallas Willard again, we're not talking about earning anything here. To be a person of character is not an effort to earn something. One of his famous quotes that I, that I love so much is he says that the gospel is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. That there is, as followers of Jesus, there, there is work for us to do, to become people of character. There, there are things that we can do to grow closer in our relationship with him so that we can better represent him in the world. But, so there's effort to be done, but there's no earning to be done. Why? Because everything we need has been given to us through Christ. We're not talking about earning anything today. The great Gordon MacDonald, who pastored for many years and wrote many books, defines character this way. He says, character is a word that describes the default me, the person I am over the long haul in life, the person who emerges in the most difficult, challenging moments. And I love this part. He says, character identifies the attitudes, convictions, and resulting behaviors that distinguish my life. It is the attitudes, behaviors, and resulting, or excuse me, attitudes, convictions, and resulting behaviors that distinguish my life. Another way that I would define character is it's our answer to the question, who am I really? Who am I really? At the end of the day, when there's no crowds around, you have no coworkers around, we've turned off our screens, social media's gone away, we're not trying to project an image to anybody, we're not curating things to look a certain way, just all of that is quiet, and we're left to our own thoughts, and we look at ourselves in the mirror. It's the answer to the question, who am I really? And I think that you and I have tremendous incentive to try to answer that question, but I'll acknowledge that it's still a weird subject to talk about. Because here's the thing, I made a joke about saying, hey, listen, I'm not standing up here telling you I have perfect character. Like, I think every one of us in this room, if I said, all right, who just has this subject dialed? Like, your character is perfect, raise your hand. Like, no one's gonna be like, yes, I have conquered this area of my life, right? So, so none of us think that we're, we're perfect, right? But also, I think all of us sort of bristle at the thought of having to kind of reckon with the deficiencies in our character, don't we? Like, who the heck are you to point that out, right? Like, we know we're not perfect, but we don't want to have to deal with kind of our challenges. In fact, I mean, I have people come to me all the time, helping them with different problems. Man, I'm facing these things. Can you help me? What's going on? Relationships, navigating all of that, you know, whatever. People come and they, they ask for help and prayer and all that stuff. I've never had somebody come to me and say, you know, I've identified why I'm having so many challenges in my life. It is because I'm a person of terrible character. <laughs> no one ever says that. No one ever says that. And the reason why we bristle so much, or I should say the reasons why we bristle at just having to look some of the challenges with our character in the mirror are, are many and complex. There's a behavioral economist at Duke who's written a number of books named Dan Ariely, and he wrote a book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, Why We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. How's that for a book title? And he says this, he says, we're all very good at rationalizing our actions, so that they are in line with our selfish motives. What, what's he saying? He's saying we're all really, really good at telling ourselves a story to defend our actions 
so that they are in line with our selfish motives, but they don't seem so selfish, or we can tell ourselves that they're not selfish. Or, or I think back to one of the finest educators who I had the, ever had the privilege of learning under, and man, oh man, did I go to a lot of school. So one of the truly best teachers I ever had was my 11th grade U.S. history teacher, and he was such a, such a wonderful man and a wonderful teacher, and I just, this is something that has stuck with me now 20-some-odd years later, how we would learn about American history, and we'd learn, just, you know, people are complicated, and a lot of people did a lot of really wonderful things, and a lot of people really did a lot of not-so-wonderful things, and, you know, most people, like most of us, kind of did a little bit of both, and something he, would kept, he kept telling us again and again is he said, people in their heart of hearts do not want to have to believe that they are bad people, so they invent stories to justify their actions, right? We don't want to believe that what we are doing is wrong, so we come up with, it, with an explanation, right? It's, it's right in line with what Dan Ariely has to say. But we're not, but, but, and, and, then, and then there's another issue as well, that many of us fall into what social psychologists call the fundamental attribution error. I don't know if you've heard about this concept, it's kind of funny. So the fundamental attribution error says that other people do bad things because they have deficient character, whereas I do bad things because of circumstances. So for example, the person who speeds by me on the freeway is speeding because they are a reckless and lawless and selfish individual who has no regard for human life. I speed because I'm late, <laughs> right? That's the fundamental attribution error. Other people do bad things because they have poor character. I do bad things. Well, I've got, a, I've got a reason for it. But I need to make sure we're very clear. We're not talking about guilt. We're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about performance today. But you and I have great incentive to pay attention to our character. We have great incentive to seek to grow, to be men and women of noble character. It's going to benefit us and it's going to benefit the people we love the most. And I think about what scripture says in you know, such a familiar passage in Galatians chapter, Galatians chapter five where Paul is writing about the fruits of the spirit. And what is one of the fruits of the spirit? Goodness. That we, get, we get a little squirrely sometimes in church talking about goodness because we understand that we're, we're sinful, flawed people and, and God is good and Jesus is good and, and our, our goodness comes from him and yes and amen to all of that. But it's also true that when the Holy Spirit takes root in our life and when the Holy Spirit takes root in our hearts that the fruit of that is goodness. So you and I have tremendous incentive to do that. This isn't about guilt avoidance. It's about living a life of consistency and integrity, and beauty. And I'll tell you one more reason this is important, and then we'll get to the, we'll get to the scriptures. I think it, it is fashionable in Christian circles to complain about the culture. Oh, have you, can you believe what's happening in the culture? Look where the culture is going. Look what the culture is doing to our kids. Oh my gosh, all of these different things. We need to scream and yell and get upset and get very, very worried about the culture. It is, and listen, I've got my own concerns about culture. Don't hear me saying that like it's all good. It is very, very easy to be a person who simply complains and complains and complains about the culture. Let me tell you something, that is inspiring to no one. That is attractive to no one. That is compelling to no one. But you know what is compelling? A beautiful life. You know what is attractive? A beautiful life. You know what is inspiring? A beautiful life. So we have tremendous incentive, like I said, to be men and women who, with God's help, we're not going to be perfect, but to seek to be people of high character who, lives, who live beautiful lives for our joy and God's glory. 
When I was at UCLA, I remember there was a professor who taught classes in early Christianity, and I never had the chance to take any of his courses, but I had a number of friends who did. And, and I always got the impression, he's a Christian man, but I always got the impression, that, impression from the way that my friends talked about him that he was kind of a little bit of a salty guy too. Like, you know, he's loved the Lord, but you know, a little salty. That's, I guess that's all I'm gonna say. But he had this quote that my friends shared with me and it stuck with me all these years. He said, you know, the first Christians didn't have big, beautiful buildings to attract people. They had to attract people with the quality of their lives. I'm like, oh, well, okay. And I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit is in us. We are empowered to live a beautiful life. We are empowered to live in a manner that is attractive to the outside world and draws people to faith in Christ. So instead of being a complainer, I want to be the person who's asking, am I growing? Am I willing to look the deficits in my character in the mirror and not make excuses and not blink? Am I, am I willing to do the work to be part of the solution. If, if you have your Bible open to 1 Peter, just flip a couple of pages over to 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to show you one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says this, that his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. But what about the culture? The culture is coming after us. The culture is so anti-Christian. His divine power has granted you all things that pertain to life and godliness. But we're so divided. We're so busy. We're all so stressed. His divine power has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have all things. We have abundance. The Holy Spirit lives on us. We can be people of character. And I want to give you the fill in the blank as we get ready to turn our attention to our text this morning. It's simply this, that character is contagious. That character is contagious. So I want to start reading. Pastor Judah did such a, such a great job of teaching the end of 1 Peter chapter 1 last week. If you missed it, make sure you grab the podcast. But I want to start reading in chapter 1, verse 22, just to set the context for chapter 2. It says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. So you have been purified, Peter says. You have been called to love. Love is the expression of your spiritual maturity. So in light of that, chapter 2, verse 1, so put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. This word put away, first of all, it's a participle, so, it's, so a better translation would be as you are putting away these things. It's like this is just part of the deal. You're putting away these things. And the word has the connotation of the removal of clothing. So if you're wearing your malice jacket, take it off. Get rid of it. Set it aside. And malice is simply desiring evil for another, to desire someone else's harm. Deceit, being willing to not tell the truth, knowing the truth and not Saying it is, that's deceit, and, and we see that, unfortunately, just all over the place culturally. Or I think about hypocrisy. 
In our tribalistic, divided, polarized world, there are so many sections of our society where it seems that hypocrisy is a value. That we don't need to tell the truth, we don't need to just be honest about what's going on because that doesn't matter as much as defending our tribe or defending our side. What is that? That is hypocrisy. And envy, jealousy, and slander, again, speaking falsely about others. These are, critical, these are critical things and they destroy relationships. And I want to be, make sure we're very clear about this. If you look back to the text, what you will not find is you will not find the words, so put away all of these things unless you have a good reason. Right? Well, they were malicious first, so it's okay to be malicious back. Right? I got, you know, you got to hit back, right? I think back to when I was, when I was a kid, as a you know, nine-year-old, ten-year-old. My, you know, my mom's trying to teach us the golden rule. He's trying to help us be, you know good kids and all of that. She's explaining the golden rule, do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I, as a very confident nine-year-old who was totally okay with, you know, correcting Jesus on, you know, how life is meant to work, I said, I don't want to live by the golden rule. I want to live by the reverse golden rule. I'm going to treat others the way that they treat me. It's really a recipe for a healthy life and healthy society, right? I think I was just looking for an excuse to be mean to my brother. But what is that? So many of us we have excuses for these things, or, or worse. So many of us, we're being formed by voices that encourage these things. I don't, listen, I just said I don't want to be the sort of person who complains about culture, and that's true. But I do think we need to pay attention to our formation. Because there are so many places in our culture where malice is lifted up as a value, where hypocrisy is lifted up as a value, where we look the other way at deceit. And when we are formed by these things, right? The result is something I don't think any of us would consciously choose. And I think, you know, even in our day and age, it's easy to, it's easy to express concern and it's easy to, to complain about, oh, the way that, that media and social media are affecting our young people, right? And I think that is something we should absolutely pay attention to. I pay attention to it with my own kids. If you've got kids, I hope you pay attention to it as well. I think we do need to be mindful of how media and social media are shaping our young people. But I will tell you right now as a pastor and just as a human being, I am 10 times more concerned about how media and social media is shaping my generation and my parents' generation because we are losing, I don't even know, there is so much spiritual wisdom in the church. I'm not talking about in the, in the, out, out, in the non-Christian culture. There is so much spiritual wisdom being lost in the church because people, my generation and the generation above me are giving, them, giving themselves over to social media rabbit holes, to cable news opinion programming, to things that are forming us in the ways of malice and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And I am begging you, especially if you are of my parents' generation. People like me, people like my kids, we need you. We need your wisdom. This is not me complaining about the culture. This is me saying, what is forming you? Please pay attention to it. You have the potential to be a spiritual powerhouse, and we desperately need you. We desperately need you. Verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. The alternative, as you put away these things, instead long for pure spiritual milk, which is the word of God. I read this verse and it reminds me of Psalm 42, verse 1. Maybe you, you know that verse. It's a, it's a famous one. We've got a, we've got a song that even goes along with it. As, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for thee. 
And I don't know what your association is with that verse, but it's probably like really nice and happy and all of that because we have this beautiful song, right? As the deer panteth for. It's, you know, it's all cute and it's all, it's just, it makes you feel good, right? Have you ever seen a deer pant? It's not cute. It's not even a little bit cute. There's a desperation there, right? God is the deer is desperate for water. So God, my soul, the deepest part of me longs for you. I, I recognize as a deer recognizes its need for water. So God, I recognize my need for you. I, I, I think about that when I, when I read this verse, long for pure spiritual milk. God, would you give me a longing for your word? God, would you fill me up with your word so that I may grow up not into fear, not into anger, not into division, but I will grow up into salvation, the word of God says. I think about one of my favorite Psalms. I, I don't keep very good notes, so I forget what I've shared and what I haven't, so I've probably shared this with y'all before. But most days, except for the days I forget, before I get out of bed, I recite Psalm 1 to myself. And I did that this morning. And how does Psalm 1 begin? Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Or I think about Psalm 119. How can a young person keep their way pure? By, by living in accordance with your word. And it goes on to say, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Long like newborn infants, for pure spiritual milk so that you grow up into salvation. And if I can say also, long for it, read it, but also learn to read it, right? Multiple times a year here at Bridgeway, we offer a class, how to read your Bible, to gain the tools to read the book and, and, and interpret it and understand it. If you have a Right Now Media account, we've put the whole class online. You can access it for free from your own home to learn the tools to understand what does the word of God say and how do I read it. It is so crucially important. Long for pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up to salvation. If, verse three, and this is a big if, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's a direct citation of Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Last week, I, again, I, Pastor Judah's sermon was just tremendous, and I, and I hope you heard it. He said so many good, good things. One thing that's really stuck with me is he said, he said last week, he said, is the dangerous thing to detach holiness from love. It is a dangerous thing to detach holiness from love, and, and isn't that true, right? I, I think in the same way, it is a dangerous thing to detach character formation from love. In fact, to put it differently, that, that character formation is meant to be a response to love, right? That it begins, we, we taste and we see, we see that God is good. So our response to that is a life of following Jesus, being formed into his character. David Brooks, he's a New York Times columnist who came to faith in Christ kind of late in life, and he wrote a book called The Road to Character. And, and in that book, he said this. He said that we don't become better because we acquire new information. We become better because we acquire better loves, right? You and I don't need better information. There's information everywhere. What we need is better loves, don't we? Because when you love something, you'll pursue it. When you love something, you see its value. Or I think about 
this famous sermon that was preached by this Scottish minister named, named Thomas Chalmers who lived in the 18th and 19th century. It's a famous sermon, and the sermon is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And I'm gonna paraphrase what he has to say because, you know, he's... Scottish folks writing words that are hard to understand, but uh, especially in the 19th century. But the sermon was so powerful, and here was the gist of it. He's saying, listen, we can stand up in front of people all day long till we're blue in the face and tell them that drinking is bad and, and promiscuity is bad and, and gambling and financial impropriety and all the you know, stealing, all these things that we see people engaging with. We can tell them all the time, don't do these things. God wants something better for you. We can, we can sort of talk about the evils of kind of these vices that tend to sort of capture people until we're blue in the face and it's not going to make a difference because what people need to understand is not that what they're doing is bad. They need to understand that there is something better, right? They need to understand that there is a God who loves them. They need to understand that, that, that being in relationship with this God is better than anything they can find out in the world, that, that to know him and to be in, in connection with him and to be part of his community, it will fill them in a way that whatever they're looking for fulfillment more out, for out in the world, just a way that simply the world cannot measure up. When we help people see that there is a better and new affection, what does it do? It expels the old out. And that's what we need as well. We don't just need more information. We don't need more cajoling and come on, hey, do this, do that. No, 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 we need better loves. We need to taste that God is good. We need to understand deep in our hearts what he has done for us and what that means. Because when we understand it, we respond in joyful obedience. Verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus was rejected by human beings, we know this, but ultimately deemed precious in the sight of God. Psalm 118 verse 22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse five, you yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I love this picture. It says that as we, as we come to him, as we pursue relationship with him, that we are our own little stones, right? And we're all kind of, you know, some of us, we're all sort of misshapen and weird and unique and we're our own little thing. But what does God do? He takes us, he puts us together and he builds a beautiful house out of it. Like, I, I love that picture of the church. That that's what the church is. And what, what does a building have? What do those stones have? They're interdependent, right? Each part has a part to play. You take a stone out of a building and that's gonna be a tough day for that building, right? That we all have a part to play and we are built up together into the church. And then it says we're being built up to, as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were offered for sin, that, that the Israelites would offer up an ox or a goat or, or some other type of animal as an expression of their sin, that the penalty for their sin would go upon the animal and it was a means of cleansing for them. And we don't sacrifice for sin anymore because Jesus is our perfect sacrifice who takes away sin forever. But you understand that in the Old Testament, sacrifices weren't only offered for sin that oftentimes uh, Israel would offer up a sacrifice uh, of thanksgiving. Say, God, we just want to thank you to show you that we love you and we're going to offer up this sacrifice to you. Or, or for communion, just to say, God, we want to be close to you. And part of how we're close to you is by offering up a sacrifice. And meanwhile, the ox is going, really? You couldn't come up with another way to do that? But 
they offer up these sacrifices, right? And in the same manner, we don't, we're not sacrificing, we're not sacrificing animals up here, but we are invited to offer up spiritual sacrifices. I love the way that the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. It says, through him, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What does this text say? spiritual sacrifices are. There is the, the sacrifice of praise, what we do when we sing, what we did just this morning as we sing to God and tell him that we love him. That is, God, I'm going to use the breath in my lungs that you have given me to offer praise back to you. That is a sacrifice of praise. And then what else does it say? It says simply to do good, to do good and to share. To say, God, I want to take the, the resources and the, the, the gifts and the talents you have given me and I want to use them to be a blessing. God, God calls that a sacrifice right? And it is a spiritual sacrifice. And then it says that these sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We need to remember that Jesus is the grounds of our acceptance, right? Jesus is the grounds of our acceptance. And everything we're talking about today, growing in, growing in our character, it is a response to acceptance, not a means of acceptance. Are we, are we tracking with that? That we grow in our character, not so that God might accept us, but rather because God, even in our weakness, even in our desperation, even in our sinfulness, God has graciously reached out to us through Jesus and welcomed us into his family. So our response to that great love, our response to that acceptance is our growth in character. It is not the way, the way that we are accepted. It is a response to that acceptance and resilient character is forged by an earnest desire to do good in response to the goodness of God. An earnest desire to do good in response to the goodness of God. And it begins by tasting and seeing. Verse six, I told you last week, by the way, or two weeks ago, that First Peter quotes the Old Testament a whole, whole bunch. This passage, I'm not even stopping to point out all of the Old Testament references. They are all over the place in this passage. Verse six, <clears throat> Excuse me, for it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28, 16. This phrase in original Hebrew, will not be put to shame. To say will not be is to imply the opposite. It's a little Hebrew literary device. So, so understand, Peter is writing to persecuted people. We, we talked about in the first week of this series that Christians in the ancient world were persecuted for their faith significantly. There was all sorts of social pressure on them. Some of them may have lost jobs or financial opportunities. Some of them may have been rejected by their families. They were looked down upon. They were teased. It was not a pleasant time to be a Christian from a worldly sense. So he's talking to these people who have been rejected and are facing persecution, and he's saying, you will not be put to shame, that you will receive honor, right? You will receive honor. You are honored. You are chosen. So because of that, be faithful and seek transformation. Be faithful and seek transformation. And as I look at our, our present age, as we've, we've talked about how society is, is growing increasingly post-Christian and that brings opportunities and, and challenges. And, and it may be true that following Jesus in, in, our, in the Western world today, it no longer is a social benefit and may, be a, may cause us some social harm. Peter would say to us, Whoever believes in him will not 
be put to shame. And we just need to understand that, that, that fighting back doesn't work, def- demanding our rights doesn't work, but instead we can recognize that we are chosen and that we are to seek transformation and that our faithful presence in the world matters. In fact, I think that's another part of resilient character, that resilient character understands the importance of faithful presence. That wherever God would send us, Whatever that environment might be like, whether it's our workplace or someplace we go socially or engaging in a hobby or a family thing or whatever, just to say, God, I want to be a faithful presence in this environment. I want to represent you. I want to serve you well. I want people to have an experience with you because they've had an experience with me. I referenced Gordon McDonald at the beginning of the teaching, and, and in, his, in, his, in that same book that I quoted, A Resilient Life, he tells a story uh, that may be somewhat familiar to you if you've traveled a whole bunch, or at least, at least the situation he was in was familiar, that he'd been traveling, doing some speaking, and he was stuck in Hong Kong, and he was on standby. Who doesn't love being stuck at the airport on standby, right? And he was told, he said, hey, they, they told him, hey, listen, everything is just completely full, completely booked, we've had all sorts of issues, there's just no way you're getting out of here for the next two nights, so, you know, get comfortable. So he goes back to his hotel, sleeps for the night, and then comes back to the airport, and there's all these different people that are trying to get on the plane and, you know, the whole thing. And he's just hoping and praying that he can, he can get on the flight. And he sees this guy who he had talked to or who had been, you know, waiting to get on the plane, and he sees him kind of walk back and sit down, and the guy's holding a boarding pass. And he goes, whoa, wait a second, how did you, how did you get that? And the guy says to him, he says, I went up to that counter, and I used about every curse word I knew, I yelled at the guy, I let them know what I thought of their bleepity bleep airline and how I'm never flying on them again, and I demanded that they get me a seat on that flight, and look what I got. And he says, you know, if you go do the same thing, I'll bet the same thing will happen to you. (laughs) So Gordon sat there, and he was like, huh, all right. So he walks up to the ticket counter, and he says to the agent, he says, um, That gentleman over there just let me know that he came up and cursed and yelled at you and was very, very rude and mean to you and that uh, as a result, he was able to get on the flight. Um, And he suggested that I come up and do the same thing. Um, I'm not that sort of person, but I would really, really love to go home tonight. So I know that things are difficult, but if there's any way at all for me to get on this flight, I would sure appreciate it. And the guy says, okay, well, great, we'll, we'll see what we can do. And Gordon walks back to his seat, and he's going like, oh, God, this is going to be so great. You're going to get me on the flight, and I'm going to be able to tell this guy, hey, there's another way to do things, and, and it can be just as effective, and it's, oh, you're going to be glorified through it. It's going to be fantastic. Guy got on the flight. Gordon went back to his hotel, and he didn't make it. But here's, and here's the thing, being a person of resilient character, being a person of resilient character will benefit you practically, in my opinion, far more often than it doesn't. Stories like Gordon McDonald's are the exception and not the rule, in my opinion. But let me ask you this, ladies, who would you rather have as a husband of those two men, out of those two men? Who would you rather have as a dad? Who would you rather have as a neighbor? Who would you rather have as a coworker or a boss? Who do you think has an easier time looking themselves in the mirror at the end of the day? Because at the end of the day, again, who you are matters. And your faithful presence matters. I, th- I think about this all the time when it comes to just church leadership and trying to make decisions and, and, and all of that. And I don't know, kind of maybe you've got your own process of just making decisions at your job or for your family or, or whatever. And when I'm trying to make decisions, I've got, I, I, mean, I want to make sure we're in line with the word of God and we're, and we're praying and we're, we're seeking the Holy Spirit and all of that. But when it comes to making decisions, I've got two other filters that I put every decision through. I say, number one, can I look at myself in the mirror at the end of the day <laughs> making this decision? Knowing that with the, best, with, 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 with the information I had, I believe we're doing the right thing. And then number two, 
Could I if I had to? Could I explain this decision to my kids without them feeling like I have violated some value I'm trying to instill in them? And if the answer to that is yes, okay, fine. I'll take whatever hate comes my way. I'll make the decision. I'll do what I need to do. But if the answer is no, we're just not doing it, right? Because see, that's part of being a person of faithful presence to say, you know what, at the end of the day, do I want to be successful? Do I want to accomplish different things? Yeah, I do. But success isn't the most important thing. Success isn't the most important thing that to be a person of faithful presence matters far more and that that is a long game that is worth playing and the payoff and the the benefit of that is significant. Verse seven, so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's saying rejecting Jesus is is, is the beginning of our own undoing. And see, resilient character means knowing where to build your life. Upon what foundation are you building? And then verse 9, it says, When you build upon the cornerstone, look, look at what you become. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's one heck of a verse of scripture right there. There's a lot of beautiful stuff right there. Exodus chapter 19, God told Moses that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. This phrase is borrowed from that text. What is a priest? A priest is somebody who shows the world what God is like. We are called to be people who show the world what God is like. We are called to be a holy nation. We are called to be a people for God's own possession. And I love the end, that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. What are the excellencies, his wonderful acts, his powerful deeds? And I wanna just tell you, man, as we seek to be men and women of resilient character, do you understand we have a great story to tell? Do you understand we have something beautiful and wonderful to share with the world? Listen, we have no need to be afraid of culture because we have what culture wants. We have what culture wants. David Brooks talked about this in a podcast that I listened to with him just recently. I thought it was so brilliant. He talked about how we have a story, we have a story that helps us make sense of ultimate reality, don't we? How many in our world are just trying to make sense of, okay, what does it all mean? We have a story that helps us make sense of ultimate reality. We have a way to talk about character formation that isn't harsh or demanding, that it's not about try harder, be better, but rather it's about, do you understand there's a God in heaven who loves you so much and he wants to do a work in your life so that you can be a person who lives a life of beauty and integrity and joy. There doesn't need to be harshness or guilt about it. It can be invitational and full of grace. We have a story that, inv- that, that, that tells us we have been radically accepted by the God of the universe and that we have been drawn into real community with people who we can love and who can love us and who we can serve alongside. We have what our culture wants. It's not just like, oh, poor old us and we need to have this siege mentality against the big bad culture. We're not victims. We're a royal priesthood, right? We're not, we're, we don't live in scarcity We operate from abundance. We don't need to hide and be afraid. We can proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness. We don't need to be afraid of the darkness because we know the one whose light shines into the darkness. And listen, we have no use. There is absolutely no use for a culture war because we can be men and women who believe in the power of the Holy Spirit of God to raise up a community of people who aren't culture warriors, but instead are culture transformers 
reformers in Jesus' name, and that is who we are called to be. That is who we are called to be. We have a great story to tell. We've been given a beautiful identity, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's language from the book of Hosea. And then verse 11, beloved, just a reminder, this is Peter in his pastor's heart speaking to his his flock. He, He loves them so much. Beloved, I I urge you as sojourners and exiles, another reference to the reality that, listen, this earth is not your home. You've been made for heaven. He says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This word passions would have been the same Greek word used in Matthew chapter five when when Jesus says, do not, whoever looks at a woman lustfully or with lustful intent. And and this idea of passions of the flesh is, is passions and desires that get out of control. And Peter says, listen, if you let your passions and desires get out of control, this isn't guilt. There's no shame here. There's there's none of that. He doesn't say, don't do that because it's wrong. Don't do that because it's shameful. He says, when you let those things get out of control, what does it do? It wages war against your soul, which in the Greek context, your soul is the deepest part of your being, right? So he's saying, just pay attention the passions of the flesh, that which would get you to a place that is out of control. Chapter one of 1 Peter, he talks about being sober-minded, right? And of course, the alternative to being sober-minded is being intoxicated. And we just live in a world where it's easy to be intoxicated by false gods and, and false ideas, right? And Peter's saying, listen, when you become intoxicated by these things, It gets you out of control. It wages war against the deepest part of you. Verse 12, keep your conduct honorable. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your behavior honorable. Now, I need to make sure we're clear about what Peter is not saying here. Peter is not saying, okay, just engage in sort of cultural accommodation. Yes, people are going to say evil things about you, and that indeed happened in 1 Peter's context. So just try to be exactly like the culture around you so that they accept you and they, uh, they see that you share their values. He's not saying say that. I will tell you this. He is saying look for areas of overlap. And I think there's some wisdom for us as Christians to go, okay, what are some causes in the outside world that we could say, yes, we believe this is close to the heart of God so we can join with those who maybe don't share our beliefs to to advocate for these things that matter. In fact, in in, in chapter two, verse 11, he's saying, you know, be careful about these things that wage war against your soul. Well, in Greek culture, this idea of self-control and stoicism and not being kind of driven to excess was a high cultural value. So that wasn't just a random thing that Peter is saying. He's saying, listen, if you, if you want people in the eyes of culture, if you want to just find an area where we can kind of all agree, this is one of them. But he says, when you keep your conduct excellent, when your response to the evil that you see is just to live a beautiful life, what does it do? It is attractive in the long term. It's attractive in the long term. I just read this short little book by, by a pastor and author named Timothy Keller called How to Reach the West Again. 
And you can read it in an hour, rainy day. It's a good day to read a book, and it's free online. How to Reach the West Again by Tim Keller. And in it, he cites the work of a New Testament scholar named Larry Hurtado, who's an expert in early Christianity. And and Larry, in a book that he wrote, talked about kind of the distinctive kind of social program that was present in the church in the Roman world. And he said, this is something that is worth studying because in Roman culture, Christians were persecuted, Christians were often killed, there was violence against believers, and yet the church exploded, right? Here they are trying to follow Jesus in a culture that says, if you're a Christian, we will kill you, and yet people are joining the church. Like, not exactly a great sales pitch, right? But the church exploded in that environment. So he asked the question in his book, why did that happen? Why were there so many converts, even amidst harsh persecution? And he said that the church was known for five things that were very distinctive in their time. Number one, that the church was multiracial and multi-ethnic. In that society, your religion was simply something you were born into. It was part of your culture. So it was very homogenous. So the idea that you would have a a faith of your own choosing and that would welcome people from all different ethnicities and was not sectarian, that was a radical idea in New Testament times, that the church was multi-ethnic and multi-racial and that the church had a high commitment to the poor and the marginalized. It was a Greek and Roman value to care for the poor and the marginalized within your own family, but the idea that you would use your resources to care for those who you didn't even know was a radical concept that was attractive to those who watched. Number three, that they were non-retaliatory, that they practiced forgiveness and non-violence. Forgiveness and non-violence, things that I think humans throughout all time are totally cool with in theory, not great with in practice. <laughs> but they, were, they didn't fight back and they didn't use violence, and instead they forgave. The number four, they were strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. That they were against the idea that that, that a baby could possibly be killed in their mother's womb or that a baby would be abandoned if they were unwanted, and the church stepped up to care for those children and to help them thrive. It was a witness to the watching world, and we have an opportunity to continue to be that witness today. And then number five, that they had a revolutionary ethic around sexuality, that it wasn't merely about male pleasure with no constraints on it, but rather it was meant to be this beautiful expression between two people who had given themselves to one another for life, that that was a radical concept in the outside world. So what happened? The church exploded. What happened in the midst of persecution and violence and mockery? The church exploded. So I just want to ask you a question as we we wrap up. What if we were men and women, what if we were a community who tasted and saw that God is good? What if we were a community that said, you know what, I'm gonna gonna turn down the volume of the, the entertainment and the social media and all of that stuff that is stirring me up and making me angry and stirring me could be, to be more divisive and all of that. And I'm gonna turn up the volume of the word of God in my life. I'm gonna be a person who longs for pure spiritual milk, right? What, what if we were people who said in response to what God has done for us, in response to this recognition that he has made us a chosen race and a kingdom of priests, that we are gonna be men and women who seek to keep our behavior excellent amongst a watching world. We're gonna be people who offer spiritual sacrifices and we are gonna be a peaceful and non-anxious presence in an anxious and angry world. Don't you think that would make a difference? Don't you think that would make a difference? I think it would. I think it would. So let me pray for you and we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you 
for your word. Thank you that it is inspired by you and it is profitable for us. I thank you, God, that you invite us to be men and women of resilient character. God, I thank you that because of your grace towards us, because, your, because of your acceptance towards us, that we don't need to be afraid of dealing with our issues. We don't need to be afraid of being honest about our flaws, that we can ask for your help, Holy Spirit, that you would refine us, that you would shape us, that you would mold us into men and women of resilient character, not because we're trying to prove anything to anybody or not so that we can think we're better than anybody, but so that we, we can be people who authentically offer spiritual sacrifices, praising your name, seeking to do good, and sharing the resources that you have given us. God, we do live in an anxious and angry world. I pray that each one of us individually and us as a church community would be able to just be the presence of Jesus, to help people see that there is a better way, to help people see that there is a way to be known and loved and accepted, to have a secure eternity and bright hope for today. God, would you form us into those types of men and women? We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said... Amen.